welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. News from lockdown in the UK. Alcohol sales soar. Champagne sales up, as are South African wines. Wine.com sales over $300 million in 2020. Snow destroys roof and three vintages of Priorat winery. California winery, William Selliam, sells steak to Domain Favely. And as ever, our wine of the week. So before we dive into this week's headlines, let's talk about the week in wine. And this week is a very important week uh, here in the U.S. and I think globally as well. That's right. Um, Wednesday sees the inauguration of Joe Biden, which we hope goes uh, peacefully. And there's a lot of speculation in the wine industry if that is going to help the U.S. wine industry in regard to tariffs. And I hope it does, because I'm quite sick of talking about tariffs on this pod. I'd really like to talk about something else. But then what would we talk about, Matthew? That's like been dominating our headlines since we started. There's so much, so much to talk about. Uh, but tariffs still remain one of those contentious issues. And there is some positivity that Joe Biden and his team may remove wine tariffs, though I'm still not convinced. Well, again, I think I've said this before on a previous pod, but, you know, this probably wouldn't be at the top of his list of, of things to address in his uh, first week as president. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I think there's some optimism uh, among the trade associations that that he will uh, take some action soon. So, you know, we're recording here. It's it's Tuesday night, um, but obviously we'll be releasing this on Wednesday. So hopefully uh, nothing too traumatic will have occurred, transpired uh, since the time of recording. But we might have to record a little update. Well, I'm fully expectant that his first announcement as president in the inauguration will be to remove the tariffs, in which case we would have to update the pod. Uh, But that does seem unlikely. But there's been quite a bit of lobbying by the wine industry and the drinks industry in general, and organisations have been created to to really give substance to that lobbying so that the industry is organised together. And there's a hope that Biden's attitude will be more open and less, and certainly less aggressive than Trump's. And all he needs to do is assign an executive order to remove these tariffs. So it'd actually be quite easy and simple to do. And so if he's, if he and his team are listening to the wine and drinks industry, then maybe something could happen. But I still think it's more complicated than that because um, this is all part of this huge airplane dis- dispute, which has, actually has nothing to do with the drinks industry. And so. Um, it really depends on the general attitude towards um, this this issue. Well, let's just hope for no more tariffs and no storming of the capital. There's not much to ask for, is it? And now, on with the news. The UK is back in full lockdown, with increasingly and depressingly large cases and deaths from COVID-19. That, of course, has had a huge impact on the hospitality industry. However, as the pod has reported over the last year, drink sales remain buoyant. It was reported this week that the high-end supermarket Waitrose has seen sales of alcohol rise by 33%, beer by 49%, tequila by 56%, and rum by 64% compared to last year. Meanwhile, sales of champagne and sparkling wine in general have also risen dramatically, Sales of champagne over the holiday period increased by 3% compared to the previous year and by 13% compared to the previous month. 
Significantly, value also rose. The average price of a bottle of champagne went above 25 pounds for the first time ever, an increase of over 5%. Sales of sparkling wine also rose 10% up on last year, although the increase was more consistent across the year, while champagne's increase was more concentrated on the holiday period. These champagne numbers are interesting because usually during an economic crisis, consumers turn away from luxury products such as champagne. However, this crisis is quite different from any other, and it's one that off-license retailers have benefited from. Another market to have perhaps surprisingly benefited is South Africa, a country whose wine industry has had a very difficult year, as we have reported on the pod. But exports of South African wine to the UK which accounts for 23% of all South African exports, have risen greatly, perhaps because of the domestic ban on sales of alcohol which have been implemented at various points over the last year, so producers have had to export. In terms of volume, exports to the UK rose by 7%, but in terms of value, the increase is 28%, a sign of South Africa's promotion of their premium wines and that UK consumers are finally willing to pay more for those wines. And this trend was reflected globally with an increase of 8% in value for exports, although a 1% decrease in volume. Hopefully, it's finally the time for both producers and consumers to recognise the quality of South African wine and that it's worth paying for. Well, that's very good news indeed to our friends in South Africa. Um, We've commented on the pod uh, many times about how it's now is the time to support uh, those producers during these hard times. Uh, And we actually had a a blind tasting of South African wines just a couple days ago. Uh, Very interesting. Um, I think I actually fared better than you, which isn't normally the case. That's right. A friend of ours organized the tasting and she decided she wanted to support South African wine which I fully uh, commend, and gave us three wines blind. We didn't know what they were at all. And it turned out that they were from South Africa. All um, good quality, a very good value Chenin Blanc from Ken Forrester for $17, which we thought was extremely good. Mm. A Pinot Noir I was less convinced by by, from Walker Bay. But then a really good Pinotage from one of our favourite producers, David and Nadia. And um, it was fun to try that blind. And have its quality confirmed, but it wasn't just kind of sentiment that makes me like that wine. It's actually very good. Well, and that sentiment comes from our amazing visit uh, to David and Nadia back in 2017, was it? Or is that 2019? I think it was 2018. Mm. Time just blurs these days. No concept <laughs> of it. But anyhow, the the two kind of welcomed us into their, their winery and, and showed us uh, all the great work that they're doing down there. And we did. We fell in love with the wines. And as you say, this one kind of confirmed that that the quality is in the glass. And I'd say our, our colleagues did as well during the blind tasting. And this rise in exports is really good news because hopefully it will continue and that South African wine can be drunk around the world and that is an an emphasis on quality rather than quantity. I think it's about time that that happened and producers have been trying to make that happen and maybe despite the difficult years South African wine has had, this is a positive outcome which is long term. Another trend of the last year has been the rise in online retail, which we've commented on in the pod. And that was confirmed by news this week that Wine.com's annual sales topped $300 million for the first time last year, more than double than that of 2019. As with the UK, sales were particularly high in the final quarter of 2020, 
with $111 million of wine sold, an increase of 64% on 2019. Interestingly, over a third of sales in 2020 were by phone, reflecting the fact that many online purchases are made by millennials and Generation Z as that generation enters adulthood. And by Generation Z, you mean Generation Z for our US listeners. Thank you for that clarification, Katie. Of course, as always. Uh, But just to clarify that properly, Generation Z... Generation Z... Is 1997 onwards. And so um, the the oldest members of this generation are 22, 23 years old. And just entering the, the wine consumption and purchasing age. Well, I suppose it goes without saying, but both the success of Wine.com and the huge success we're seeing in the UK is driven primarily through e-commerce. And that is, you know, something that will probably continue to grow even as things start to open up. Now that consumers everywhere are much more accustomed to just picking wines off of a retail site rather than having to go see it on the shelf or even taste it. And it would be wonderful, kind of connected to our discussion of tariffs, if wine laws do change to make it easier to ship. If consumers are getting used to buying wine online, they need to be able to go to um, all the different states across the US, which is actually very difficult right now. Wine.com can do it because they have um, sites in each state which they can technically ship from, even if they're shipping from California. There's a lot of bureaucracy that they um, are able to get around. Distribution centers. Distribution centers, exactly. Thank you for the um, technical term. Um, But hopefully things will open up in the next 10 years, because surely if online retail becomes really important, having barriers stop that from happening cannot continue. Well, this is the US, so it could continue. Yes, change happens very slowly here. Last week, Spain received the heaviest snowfall in over 50 years, particularly in inland continental Spain. Hard to imagine, as it's been very hot here in California. It's been insanely hot here in California. It's like 25 degrees yesterday. Mm. Yes, well, in Spain, they're skiing across the plazas. Roads were closed, and many people were unable to get out of their homes. Despite the temporary strain on travel, it would seem that it wouldn't be a big issue for the wine industry. In fact, snow can be a great source of water for vines. But one winery did suffer from the excess snow. Val Lash, a Priorat producer, recorded a video of their winery's roof collapsing due to the weight of the snow, potentially destroying winery equipment, and the 2018, 2019, and 2020 vintages being stored in the facility. Priorat is an old traditional region, and as in other areas of Spain, the winery buildings are not designed to withstand heavy amounts of snowfall. Instead, the design is more about keeping cool in hot summers. This is a colossal blow to the winery, which was already struggling to sell inventory due to the current global crisis. Donations to help can be made on their website. Yes, it is a big blow to them because they've lost their winery, or at least the structure of their winery, uh, their equipment and potentially uh, back vintages as well, which were being stored in the winery. So that's like a, a, triple, a treble blow. Well, especially during the current circumstances where most businesses and wineries are trying to cut their costs whenever they can. Yes, and the fact they were struggling to sell their wine, that's why there's 2018 vintage in the mm-hmm. winery, because usually they would have got rid of that by now. 
but it was still there. Yes, well, we'll definitely do what we can to help and encourage all our listeners to do the same. So now, not only do we have to drink South African wine to support that industry, we have to drink Spanish wine as well. I think we can do it. And I think you had a story that sort of relates to this, um, but in a different field, football. Well, I've been following the Spanish news about the snow through football more than anything else. A lot of games were postponed. There was a lot of controversy about some of the games that were played. Uh, Real Madrid players had to sit on a plane for four hours waiting for it to take off. I'd be pretty nervous if I was in a massive snowfall on a plane for four hours. But they went ahead with it and played. And then Getafe, which is another Madrid team, their game had to go ahead as well. And so the uh, Federation sent Uber drivers to the players' houses to pick them up because they couldn't get out of their houses because they were snowed in. Obviously, Uber drivers are not experts in driving in the snow. And so one of the cars um, got stuck and the players had to get out of the car and help the driver um, push it onto the road to get it going again. I would say if you're in that situation again, just postpone the game. Just stay home. Yeah. And, and especially with COVID as well. But um, all went ahead somehow. And, but just a sign of just how bad the snow was in Spain. Um, the worst in 50 years or more. Hard to imagine, as we said over here, where we've had um, where we've had record temperatures uh, here in California. But such is the world we're living in with uh, climate change, which some people still feel doesn't exist. Domaine Favely, one of the most important and recognized wineries of Burgundy, have bought a minority stake in William Selliam here in Sonoma County, one of the pioneers of California Pinot Noir. William Selliam was established by Bert Williams and Ed Selliam in the late 1970s, with the first vintage released in 1984. Having established a reputation for quality Pinot Noir, a variety once thought unsuitable for California, the winery was sold to John and Kathy Dyson in 1998, who have continued to build the winery and make it one of the most sought-after producers in the state. The couple will maintain a majority stake, although it is likely that if Domain Favely's investment is successful, the Burgundy producer will increase that stake. Representatives of Domain Favely said investment in California had been a long-standing priority, and they are excited to become involved in one of California's leading producers. And the Dysons had spent five years looking for the ideal partner, as their children were not interested in taking over the winery. So this has not been an overnight swoop by Favely. Well, and I think we'll see this more and more play out in wineries uh, across California that were sort of, especially in these more established regions like Napa and Sonoma, we have uh, very old family wineries. And now the coming time for the new generation to, to take take over and not all of them are interested. So I think, you know, we've seen some outside investment and we'll see more and more of it as we uh, continue on. But this one seems like a good fit. Uh, Domain Favely, I mean, obviously a, a renowned Burgundy producer, it seems like it, it makes sense. Yes. And they said they will not actually change anything. This is an investment, not but not one to uh, radically reinvent the wheel. They know the qualities there already. It's more just a case of continuing and long-term planning. And we saw this with Louis Roderer buying Murray Edwards a couple of years ago, commenting on what you you mentioned, that these producers are going through different cycles. And the French are always very willing to invest in foreign wineries. This kind of thing is the French have been very insular, but actually they have their tentacles all over the world. Well, they know that there's a lot of money to be had here in California. 
And now, Katie, for our wine of the week, which is another easy-to-pronounce name for you to uh, share with us. I knew you were going to give this one to me. Carl Heidler, Buntermergel, Lemberger, 2017, from Württemberg in Germany. So there's a lot of scary German names in that uh, wine. So let's just go through them. First of all, what's Lemberger? Blaufränkisch. That's right. It's the German name for Blaufränkisch. It's also called that in Washington State. And there's a little bit planted in Germany. I've never actually tried one before, so this is really exciting to try Blaufränkisch from Germany. Next question. Where's Württemberg? It's a region in Germany. It is a region in Germany, absolutely correct. It's one that's not found very much outside of Germany. I'm just consulting the map, just give me a moment. And as Katie is consulting the map, it's taken her some time because it is quite a small region, but she has found it. So it's just east of Pfalz and south of Franken. Yeah, so it's a little bit disconnected from the other German regions. It's not connected to the Rhine or the Mosel or any of the famous rivers. There's a lot of history in Württemberg. And I think there's actually quite a bit of wine made there, but it's mainly for a domestic consumption. So pretty exciting to um, be able to try not just Lemberger, but Württemberg as well. So who's the producer? Karl Heidler. And so he was a gymnast, apparently a very famous gymnast, who um, founded this winery in 1949. But he died um, quite young, sadly. And so his son Hans uh, took over the winery when he was just 23 years old. And then he really built up the quality. And his son um, Moritz, who's a graffiti artist and really into hip hop, is now in charge. So a pretty interesting story. And the other question, Katie, referring to the label, it says Bunte Mergel. What does it mean? Coloured marl. Interesting. So it's an interesting thing to put on the label because no one has any idea what that might mean, but there it is. Yes, well, maybe this wine is going for the the true wine geek uh, who has heard marl a thousand times um, with reference to the soil. Uh, Sort of a a blanket word concept that you can apply to many different types of soils, really. But along with this backstory, very interesting. The scary German names, the unusual grape variety, the less recognized region, the name of the soil and the wine, the story of the the winery, but most importantly, Katie, what does the wine taste like? Delicious. Yeah, I was very impressed by this wine and it tasted like Blaufränkisch because it's nice and spicy and meaty, but from this cooler climate, just 12% alcohol is also very light as well. So really It's very fresh. Yeah, very fresh, a very nice combination. And we had it with salmon, which I thought was a very nice pairing. Yes, very good. It almost, you know, they say Pinot Noir is a great pairing for salmon. So I would say this is a great alternative uh, if you don't have any Pinot in your cellar. Though I don't know why you would have Lemberger if you don't have any Pinot, but you know, to each their own. The cost, it is $30, so it is a little bit pricey, um, but for for something so unique and not really found that much outside of Germany, um, I think it's worth the, the worth the cost. Yes, and I think you guessed that it would be about $25, so mm-hmm. just a little bit more than you thought it was worth. But I still think, as you say, for such an unusual, unique wine, you do have to pay that little bit more. And this producer does have a very good reputation, which I think was justified uh, by this wine. They also make Riesling, and they also have a single vineyard, Lemberger, as well, which um, is not available here in the States, but it's supposed to be very good. Uh, so a real emphasis on quality. And I'm sold. So now I'm going to have lots of Lemberger in my cellar, just in case I don't have any Spätburgunder. Cheers to that. 
So thank you for listening on this uh, very exciting inauguration day. Uh, We do invite you to rate and review us. Uh, It helps people find us. And as our most dedicated listeners know, that is our New Year's resolution to get this pod into more people's feeds. Whether you're drinking South Africa, Spain, or Lemberger, we're here for you. Cheerio. Cheerio.